You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. Glad my welcome to Todd's. My name is... Ross and uh, <clears throat> and you guys are the are the hardy group right in the middle of a rainstorm. Glad to see you today. Hey, we are uh, continuing our study in the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter three. So if you've got your Bibles, you can find your way there. I'll begin uh, this way. Plato said that to know good is to do good. To know good is to do good and. That is a philosophy that for 2,300 years uh, was the foundation of the society in the Western world. But there's a man named Jack Bouchong who would absolutely disagree with it. Uh, From a Sports Illustrated article in 1966, if you'll uh, forgive the date on it, but in 1966, Sports Illustrated carried the article. It said this, that the new... At the time, the new seven-story flagship hotel in Galveston, Texas, uh, is built on a long pier extending into the Gulf of Mexico. Not long ago, a guest admiring the view from his room on the third floor saw a large redfish going by straight up, its destination the sixth floor, where another guest was fishing from his balcony. Since it opened last year, the flagship has been trying to dissuade its clientele from fishing. Well, it's about 40 feet from the first floor to the gulf, explains the manager, Jack Bouchong. And the guests have to use heavy sinkers, and in hauling them up, the sinkers frequently swing in and break the big plate glass windows in our dining room. And it costs $609 to replace one of those windows. Now, Bouchong has come up with a solution. He removed from the dresser in each of the rooms the card that read, Positively, no fishing from the balconies. Bouchong said, Apparently now it doesn't occur to our guests to fish anymore. See, this morning what Paul is going to do is he's going to come along and say absolutely the exact opposite of Plato. He's going to say that to know good is to do bad. Because we can't help it. See, Paul knew this because it had been proved time and time and time again, 1,200 years before Plato ever came onto the scene. Paul's going to show that, that rules and, and codes of conduct, actually, actually what they do is they make us worse or, or reveal that that we're worse off than we thought we were because what it does is it stirs up in us sin and rebellion and depravity that is already there. He's going to say that really the best that we can do will be revealed to be never good enough. Martin Luther will say about the law, which is what this passage is going to be about, is that the principal use of the law is to make men not better, but worse, in order that they might ultimately be transformed 
by the gospel of Jesus. And that's going to be Paul's thesis. So in chapter 3, where we are, Paul has been arguing from the very beginning. Say, hey, look, Galatians, I came in there, I preached the gospel to you, and the gospel said that, listen, Jesus has done it all. He came and lived the life you could never live. He died the death you deserved. And that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus. All that he has done for you. Believe in him. Trust in him. Receive what he has done. That's the gospel, period. It's Jesus plus nothing else. That's the gospel. But some opponents of Paul, some Judaizers have come in behind Paul and said, listen, no, it's, it's, it's Jesus and it's something that you've got to do. It's Jesus and a set of standards that you've got to live by. It's Jesus and the law of Moses, including and beginning with circumcision. And so Paul has been making a case all throughout Galatians chapter 3, and he'll begin here in verse 15. A law professor, Jerome Hall of Emory University, argued in the Journal of Law and Religion, he said that it was in his letter to the Galatians that Paul was the lawyer par excellence, refuting and attacking his adversaries and in his affirmative case, making use of analogy, precedence, and history, he knew how to win his case, and he won it. And so listen what Paul does, beginning in verse 15. He's going to go all the way back to the heart of the problem. He says in verse 15, he says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul's taking the argument to the heart of his opponent's misunderstanding, the heart of the Judaizers' misunderstanding. They were teaching something had to be believed and something had to be achieved. Something had, uh, there, there was a trust. Listen, you, you needed to trust God. And then on the other hand, there was also a standard that needed to be lived up to. Their understanding came from two major events in the Old Testament. One of them was a covenant that God made with Abraham. The other was God's giving of the law to the Israelites through Moses. So in verse 15, he begins, here's a human example. In a man-made covenant, here's what we know. You make a covenant, you ratify it, the deal's done. There can't be any changes that are made after the deal's done. You can't come back afterwards and amend it or annul it. It's like in a marriage. You stand there, you say your vows, the minister's there. You conclude, till death do us part. You sign the marriage license. You can't come back five years later after living with the guy and go, hey, listen, you know, I'd really like to make a few changes in these vows. A few things I'd like to amend on the thing. You, you can't do that. You already said it and signed it. The, the covenant's been ratified. That's what Paul's saying. 
And then in verse 16, notice what he does. If you heard the language, he's going to argue now. He gets into the details of the, of the covenant, of, of the contract, if you will, like a lawyer. He says, okay, now, let's look at the fine print here. It, what God did when he said it, he said, look, if, if you noticed, it's a singular there. It's, it's offspring singular. It's not offspring, offsprings plural. And his, his point is, is that, look, the covenant that God made with Abraham, he, listen, be sure you notice it in your texts, he says. It's referring to not many, but one. And this one is Christ. Now, look, here's what Paul knew. Paul knew that in the Hebrew, the word offspring, just like the word in the Greek, is, is what is called a collective singular, which means it can, it can mean both one and it can mean many. But Paul knows this, and he knew that when God was making the promise to Abraham, he made the promise to Abraham, he took Abraham outside, he said, hey, Abraham, look at the stars. If you can number them, you, then, then you'll be able to count how many offspring you have. He, to, the sand on the sea, the, the dust on the ground. Abraham, you're going to... He knew that when God was talking to Abraham about offspring, he knew that he meant it collectively. But he also knew that there was more than something grammatical going on. He knew there was something more than the collective offspring that God was talking about. Paul here is making more than a grammatical point. He's making a theological point. What he's pointing to is that Paul is pointing to what the whole of the Old Testament has always been pointing to. That the center of everything that Moses wrote, the heart of everything that every Old Testament writer recorded. The good news of what God has always been revealing from, from after the first moments that sin entered into the world and humanity is there trying to cover their shame and hide their guilt before a holy God, that God's word of hope, his promise of redemption as Adam and Eve are leaving the garden that there's going to be a redeemer who comes. And he's going to defeat and destroy the enemy. And in the process, God's going to restore all of his original blessing to humanity. A king is going to come and crush the enemy. And the promise in the garden is the promise of a seed or an offspring. And the promise is the offspring. And we find, listen, God hasn't forgotten about it. And in fact, God makes the promise to Abraham. He makes the promise through Abraham. And then he ratifies it with one of the most mind-blowing events. One of the most mind-blowing things that we see God do in all of the pages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the way that God makes this covenant catches the reader by surprise. You see, because up to this point in Genesis, God has spoken a word and he's created the heavens and the earth. He, he's fashioned man out of dust. He's breathed life into him. We've seen God pronounce judgment and curse upon sin entering into the world through the rebellion of mankind. We've seen him send a flood. We've seen him at the Tower of Babel. 
confused the language of all the nations. And then you get to Genesis chapter 11 and you see the world. It's filled with chaos and it's, and, and it's sin and rebellion. And the whole world is, is like black and dark with sin raging against God. And then Genesis 12. It opens up with, a, with God calling a man named Abram. I mean, it's almost like you can, you can hear, cue the, cue the music. It, this must be the hero. It must be the champion. Here's God's man. But here's the deal. I mean, the record scratches or the orchestra, you know, they stop mid-note. Abram steps out and is not hope you feel. I mean, your heart sinks. I mean, as the reader, you think, well, wait a minute. This is the guy? I mean, he's past his prime. And that's a nice way to say it. He, so is his wife, for that matter. I mean, she's without children. They're past the age of bearing children. It's an elderly couple. And on top of that, God's promises to this old man, you know what they are? They're an offspring. They're, God's going to make a great name. He's going to become a great nation possess a great land, be a great blessing. In other words, we find out that what God is going to do to save the world, to set things right, he's going to do in some way through this man named Abraham. Well, Ab Abram, as he's known then, he follows the call of God. He, he follows God. And so for many years he waits and he wonders, you know, when, when's this thing going to get started? Because he's not getting any younger, and in fact, he, he's getting older. And so Genesis 15, which is what Paul's referring to, opens up, and God comes to Abram, and Abram says, Hey, look, God, I, it's been a while, and nothing's really happened, and I don't know if you know how this thing happens, but I, I, I want to help you out. Here's my plan. I have this servant. His name's Eleazar. He's a good man, and I, I think here's the, here's the plan. Let's have... The line, let's have the inheritance. Let's, let's make him my heir. He can be the heir. All the promises can go through him. And if you're willing, I think we could probably make this deal happen this afternoon. We can get on with the business. And God says to Abram, no, absolutely not. God says, your very own son will be your heir. Your very own son through Sarah. And he says, Abram, do you see those stars? If you can number them, so shall your offspring be. Well, that's when Moses tells us that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So then what happens is God is going to make a covenant with Abram. He says, okay, Abram, here's the deal. We're going to make a covenant on this deal. Go get, a, go get a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. Cut the... Heifer, goat, and ram in half, not, not the birds, but lay them out, prepare them. It's, a, it's going to be a covenant signing. And then what would happen is kings would do this. They would come into a land that they conquered. They would take their subjects. The subjects would prepare the covenant signing. They'd cut these animals in half. And then the king would announce his terms, his covenant terms. And he would make his subjects walk through it. And the king would say, listen, if you don't live up to the covenant terms I've announced... 
then your fate is going to be like those animals. If you break the covenant, then may you be cut to pieces, cut off like these animals. May you die and be ripped to shreds like these. If you break the covenants, may curses fall on you. That's what it meant. That's what you meant when you signed the covenant by walking through the deal. So here's the deal. Abram gets ready. He thinks this is about to happen, that he's about to walk through the pieces. That's what he thinks. Except God, what God does is he puts Abram to sleep. In a deep sleep. It says a dead sleep. And then God does one of the most startling things in Scripture. God himself walks through the pieces. God signs the covenant. By God signing the covenant, he is saying, if I break this covenant, may I be cut up into pieces. May I be cut off. May I die and be ripped to shreds like these animals if I break this covenant. That's what God's declaring. And then he wakes Abram up. He says, Abraham, you and I are in covenant. Unconditional, unilateral. I'm in covenant with you forever. And I've assumed all the responsibility of it. And so in verses 17 and 18, what Paul says to his opponents is, see, Here's the deal. The law came 430 years after this. It doesn't annul it. It doesn't amend it. It doesn't break it. It can't. What God did is a promise that's binding forever, and nothing's going to change it. And so you might ask the question, because... Paul's readers were asking the question. The Galatians were asking the question. Paul's opponents were asking the question. Then why the law, Paul? If you're such a good arguer, if you're such a good attorney, if you're such a brilliant theologian now, why the law? Let's stop and ask this question for a second. Maybe, maybe you've heard the question. If you, if you died tonight... Why would God let you into his heaven? And, and that's a great question, by the way. If you died tonight, why, why should God let you into his heaven? And, you know, chances are, I mean, statistics say or experience will play out. If you ask somebody that question, even in the Bible, Belt, you, you ask them that question, the chances are that, you know, listen, they'll take a moment, they'll find some words, they'll begin to answer, and the answer will come out something like this. I've Listen, well, I've, I've tried my best to be a good person. I mean, I've, I've, I've really done my best. Something like that. And what's so interesting is that even here in the Bible Belt, even something like that, listen, I've, I've done my very best, and I, and I think God knows that, of all the things that Jesus responds to in the Gospels, that's the one thing he responds to and says, listen, of all the answers anybody could give, that's the wrong answer. I mean, you can think about Jesus when he meets the rich young ruler. How, well, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, keep the laws. The guy says, well, I've done all that. Well, 
And it's the wrong answer. And, and so if there's such a misunderstanding of Jesus, then why is that? Why is, why is that so widespread? Well, maybe it's because the Bible's so full of laws. I mean, if being right with God is not about following the laws of God, then why put it in there? I mean, why the law? I mean, why Moses? I mean, why even include anything about Moses? I mean, if the gospel's the answer and the gospel is Jesus, that by grace, through faith in Jesus alone, he's done it all, then why include anything about the law at all? Paul's going to answer that question in verse 19. And he's going to say this, that the purpose of the law is to raise the question that only Jesus can answer. And it's a question that we would not have asked otherwise. Look at what he says, verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, Paul's asking the question about the law, why the law? It's a, it's a good question. And what he's saying is, look, there's something wrong with us and we didn't fully know how wrong it was. So you see, Israel, they, they'd been in slavery for 400 years or so, more than 400, and they had no real freedom. The constraint on their days, the lack of freedom and choice, the limited options of their life and future, it would have been easy for them to mistake the restraint of their circumstances for the righteousness of their heart. That was the Israelites. Truth is, it's easy for us to also to mistake the restraint of our circumstances for the righteousness of our heart. That's why, that's why a lot of folks grow up in a church. They leave the church. They've mistaken the restraint of their circumstances for the righteousness of their heart. They walk away from the church. Leave the faith. See, they didn't know their own hearts yet. They didn't know their sin. They didn't know that something was deeply wrong inside of them. And so Paul says, hey, look, the, the law is, you think of it like a thermometer. Law comes along like a thermometer. It takes your temperature. You ever go to somebody and say, hey, you look like you're sick. 
Do what? No, I'm not sick. I don't know. You look, look kind of pale. Are you running a fever? And then they go like this. They go, huh. No. I don't feel warm. Like, really? You put your own hand on your own head and you don't feel warm, huh? Weird. I mean, you get that, right? I'm not the only non-doctor that knows that doesn't work, right? Well, here, stick this in your mouth anyway. Two minutes later, thing beeps. 101, you have a fever. Guess what? You have the flu. You're sick. You see, we were already sick, already sinful, already had a fever, but we didn't know it. See, God gives the standard. He gives his law. His holiness comes to us in his law. And what it does is it reveals our condition. And so in a sense, what happens is the law comes and it converts sin into transgression. That's what Paul says. See, transgression means to violate a standard, to rebel. Sin was always there. It was always there. But in light of the law, now, now it's exposed. Now it's brought to light. Now it's brought out into the open. Now there's something to transgress. See, the sin, sin was no surprise to God when he gave the law. I mean, the depth of our sin, the depth of man's treachery, the depth of the evil and wickedness and rebellion and idolatry of his chosen people, the, the people he called out of Egypt that he redeemed, the, the, the people that he loved, the, the people that he called when he called Abraham out of Ur. None of this caught God by surprise. It's not as though he gave the law and then it floored him that the Israelites turned out to be so terrible in light of the law. It didn't surprise him because it was his design. See, the only people surprised by the depth of depravity that was present in their hearts, you know who? It was the Israelites. I mean, that's right. So God gives them the law, and they respond with confidence. I mean, the law... Heck yeah, bring it on. We're ready. So God calls them. Exodus 19, this is what Paul's referring to. 430 years later, God calls Moses, bring everybody to Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, they all come. God's going to do something, Moses says. They say, all right. Whatever, whatever God says, all the words that the Lord's going to command, we're ready. Everything the Lord has spoken, we're going to do it. So Moses goes back and says, Lord, hey, the people said, everything you said they're to do, they're going to do it. So what happens is they say, we're going to obey his voice. We're going to keep his covenant. We're going to be his treasure among all peoples. We're going to be a kingdom of priests. We're going to be a holy nation. And God, he said, okay, I'm going to anoint you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to call you up to my mountain. And they said, we're ready. All that the Lord's spoken, we're going to do. In Exodus 19, it's really amazing. What happens is God does 
does to Israel, what he does, he does to them. All of Israel in three days. And it says, it says it a couple of times, on the third day. Hmm. It's probably a coincidence. But anyways, he, he calls them, calls them to come up to the mountain, just like he said he would, just the very way that he said he would. So he anoints them. They go through all the motions. Third day comes. God thunders, just like he said he would. And guess what? They won't go. They're terrified. They tremble. The word tremble, the word it uses for tremble says they were afraid, like being hunted like an animal. They were afraid they were about to be executed. They were confronted with the holiness of God. They thought God was going to kill them, and so they took their foot, their place at the foot of the mountain, and they, and they said, we're not going. God's going to kill us. So Moses goes up. God says, go down there and warn the people. He gives them the Ten Commandments. Moses goes down, gives the Ten Commandments to the people. Here's what the text says. Now, when all the people, in Exodus 20, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We don't want to have to talk to God again. You see, it wasn't God who was finding out about the hearts of his people. It was his people, his chosen people, who were beginning to discover something about their own hearts. They were seeing their own failures, their own sin. The holiness of God was being revealed to them in the law of God, and it was coming to them in a way not only to reveal His holiness, but revealing their unholiness and bringing them to a place of humility and desperation. See, listen, humility is the frequency setting, the frequency setting of the heart where grace can be Received. The law comes, reveals sin, converts it, sin to transgression, tunes our hearts to humility so we can hear the gospel of grace. So we go, oh, I didn't know that about me. I didn't know I was so wicked. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I didn't know what covetousness was. Till the law told me what it was. And then I found I was, I was, a, I was more coveter than I ever imagined. It's not until you see the hopelessness of your situation are you willing to receive the hope of a Savior. It's not until the law has run you to the end of yourself are you ready for the promise of Jesus. And in verse 20, what he's saying there about the mediator and intermediaries, the law, it required a mediation. They didn't want to speak to God. Abraham, God speaks to Abraham face to face. You know what's amazing? 
Moses tells Abraham lived a life of faith before the law was ever given. Moses lived under the law and did not get to see the promised land because he did not believe God. That's what it says, Numbers chapter 20. That's why he didn't get to go into the promised land. Not because he broke the law, because he did not believe. In verse 21, the law and the promise, they're not different. They're, they're different things, but they're, they're not in contradiction with each other. The law was used by God to fulfill God's promise. The law shuts man up, encloses him, imprisons him in a sin, condemns him, declares him guilty, shows him his nakedness, laughs at his fig leaves, brings him to the end of himself so that he acutely and fully and painfully and sorrowfully is aware of his desperation and his need. God used the law to show us we're sinners so he can save us. See, the Judaizers, Paul's opponents, they said, no, look, God gave us the law because we're special. He gave us the law, and it's this hedge. It's, this, it's like this iron, impregnable wall around us. Think about the Great Wall of China. And, and God put us in here to keep us righteous, to make us pure. And as long as we're inside this wall of the law, we're pure and special and righteous to God. And Paul says, well, it's a wall, all right, but not the kind of wall you think. It's a prison. You're in a prison of sin. That's what it is. You are hedged around on all sides by the sin of your heart being revealed by the holiness of God. God helps those that help themselves? No! God helps those who come to the end of themselves. The point of the law was to show the gravity and weight of sin. To make it known. So that it would reveal the absolute inadequacy of the sinner. And utter dependency of humanity. For their need of a savior. And there at the end of verse 22. It says so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. Might be given to those that believe. By faith. Martin Luther had a vivid way of describing faith. He said that faith doesn't, doesn't mean the mental ascension to a truth. Just, just agreeing with it in your mind. It means faith means Throwing yourself onto God. Every text of Scripture, understood in its context, calls us to throw ourselves onto God. And, and no text, understood in context, calls us to throw ourselves onto ourselves. Paul says, look, if there was a law that could have given life, you know, a law that leads to righteousness, there would have been, but there isn't. The only way is by faith. You know, look, I know I've, I've shown you this before, but, but, but in light of this passage, it's worth repeating. But real quick, Matthew begins his gospel. Matthew, the gospel begins. He says this. Begins telling us that Jesus is 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, he's the king we've been waiting for. He's the offspring that was promised. And then after a couple of chapters of telling us about Jesus' life and reminding his Jewish readers of Israel's history in Egypt and in, in, in the wilderness, Jesus does all these things. Jesus goes up to a mountain. He delivers a sermon. He gives the law. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's beautiful, full of hope, imagery of the kingdom and, and the future to come. But at the same time, if we're honest readers, it brings despair. Because the holiness of God that Jesus portrays is no less demanding than the law of Moses. In fact, in many ways, Jesus raises the bar. Nothing escapes God's notice in prescribing how we should live before him. Not, not the thoughts of our minds, not the feelings of our hearts. And the hearers on that hillside that day, they knew there was something different about Jesus. They, they, they knew there was authority and a power in his words. They were they were amazed. Never heard anything like it. And interestingly enough, it's the last giving of the law. And I think Matthew knows, as he's writing his gospel, the place to begin with his readers is a diagnosis. We have to know the depth, the malignancy of our disease in order to appreciate the great physician. The law discovers the disease. The gospel, it's going to come along as a remedy. As Spurgeon says, the law is meant to lead the sinner to faith in Christ by showing the impossibility of any other way. And so Matthew gives us a glimpse, a foreshadow of things to come. He helps us know how to respond to the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us a response of faith. Uh, a throwing yourself on God, if you will. Because when Jesus comes down from the mountain, the very next scene, it says in Matthew 8, And when he came down from the mountain, the great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And the leprosy was cleansed. You see, the point is, we are all lepers in need of cleansing. We are all sinners in need of grace. And Matthew follows up the law giver with the great physician who heals and heals and heals and then goes to the cross and takes our wounds and our sin and our curse and our punishment and our death and gives us His righteousness. So at the end of that, you know what we say? Praise the Lord for the law showing us the need for the Savior. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for both the law and the gospel. For 
every utterance that you have revealed. Without it, we would not know our need, and without it, we would not know the hope of grace that you have granted. So, Father, like David, we can say we love your law for the hope it produces in us for how it tunes us to hear your grace. For how it fixes our eyes upon the Savior. Makes us long for your Son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for it. We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus. By the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.